When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Thoughts from a Page podcast and Top Shelf at Merrick Library podcast for this special episode with two of your favorite hosts, Cindy Burnett and me, Carol Tack. We're joining forces to bring you our interview with author Kimmery Martin for her latest book, Doctors and Friends. Hello, Thoughts from a Page listeners and Top Shelf at Merrick Library listeners. I'm Cindy Burnett, and welcome to our special episode. Today's guest, Kimberly Martin, is an emergency medicine physician, and she's turned novelist, and she's writing medical fiction. She is the author of The Queen of Hearts, The Antidote for Everything, and her latest book, Doctors and Friends, is available right now. All that said, listeners, please join the both of us in welcoming author Kimberly Martin. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, Kimmery. How are you today? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm great, and we are so glad you're joining us today. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about your book? Give us a quick summary of what Doctors and Friends is about for those that won't have read it yet. Well, the first thing I usually mention when people ask me about this new novel is, and this is important, I came up with the idea for it in 2018 and pitched it, sold it to the publisher, researched it, and wrote a first draft mostly in 2019. And the book is about an infectious disease doctor at the CDC in the middle of a brand new worldwide viral pandemic. So I do kind of want to make it clear that the book is not inspired by COVID, partly because I don't want to you know, capitalize on a tragedy, but also because I don't want it to be confusing about what's real and what's fictional. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And it was hard to read it and not think of everything that we had just gone through. But I like that you say that you started the book in early 2019 or 2018, well before the world had any inkling that this was going to be happening. Tell me about the backstory. How do you come up with the idea of a pandemic? Well, in my case, I've always been interested in infectious disease. You know, I'm an emergency medicine doctor myself by training and I had read a lot of books about the calamitous 1918 influenza pandemic, which was so virulent that you could have a young adult be fine in the morning and dead by the evening. And of course, you know, that's a that's a captivating, horrifying idea. So I thought, you know, we are eventually going to experience another viral pandemic. They happen periodically. 
And it would be interesting to write a cautionary tale about what that might be like in the era of modern medicine. And of course, I did not foresee it actually happening (laughs) as I was finishing the book. Um, I was completely startled. But I did try to create a fictional virus a little bit based on the 1918 influenza virus, but I threw in a lot of other things. And I can tell you about all of that in as much or as little detail as you want. (laughs) Well, it's just hard because I remember reading this thinking, oh my gosh, it, it was in the air or something, how this idea comes to you. And I guess when I was reading it, I thought, wow, if this had come out in 2018 or 2019, I would have thought to myself, well, I would never see that in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And there's a real specific scenario in the book that was inspired by another pandemic, which was the 2014 Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. So in the novel, Doctors and Friends, the main character who is part of this group of female friends who have been close since medical school, she's an infectious disease doctor, and she's one of the people who helps formulate the American response to the outbreak. But it becomes really personal for her when near the end of the pandemic, Her children, both her son and her daughter, contract the virus. They're both deathly ill. And she just happens to have access to one dose of an experimental antiviral medication. And she has to choose between her children. And I know that sounds implausible and far-fetched, but I actually based that on a real-life scenario that occurred during that Ebola outbreak, which I read a book about. (laughs) So that was the genesis for the main dilemma in the plot. My goodness. I was so curious how that had turned out in real life, the one that you based it on. Yeah. Okay. So there's a wonderful book. If you're at all interested in pandemics, which maybe no one is now, but but if you are, <laughs> there is a book called Crisis in the Red Zone by Richard Preston. He's the same guy that wrote The Hot Zone um, a decade or so ago. And that goes into this 2014 Ebola outbreak. And he tells the story, which was widely reported in the press at the time, of an aid camp in Sierra Leone where a doctor and another medical worker both contract Ebola. And the medical director of the camp just happens to have access to one dose of an experimental antiviral medication called ZMAP, which was basically almost theoretical at this time. It had never been given to a human being. And this poor doctor has to decide which of his two dying colleagues is he going to treat? Because there's just the one, the one dose. And so you can read, of course, what happened. And I, I'm happy to tell you that actually both people did survive in that case. But I think what he did is he wound up splitting the dose. And that is not what happens in my book. Um, I very specifically set it up so that that can't happen. <laughs> but in real life, that, that particular story did have a happy outcome. Although, you know, you get into so many ethical questions with you know, do you administer an, an, an untested drug? Do you give it to people in a position of privilege when there's people dying of Ebola all over the place? You know, if you're going to pick, how do you pick? So many ethical questions arising from that scenario. And it sounded to me like it would make for compelling fiction. For sure. I, I may have had to color my hair halfway through the book. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough one. So Kimmery, as you're writing this book and all of a sudden COVID starts and you're in edits, Was it hard to kind of watch what played out similarly in your book versus what played out differently for our pandemic? 
Well, it was surreal, completely bizarre to see this playing out in real life. And by the way, I contracted COVID myself and developed long-term symptoms. So that, that made it even more strange to have written this book that the virus causes a bizarre neurologic side effect. And then I promptly enter a pandemic and contract a virus and develop a bizarre neurologic side effect myself. But as we were revising the novel in the midst of COVID, we did, my editor and I did talk and try to make a conscious decision about what to leave and what to change to be reflective of reality. And what we did not change was the societal and governmental response in the book to the virus, which was very functional and unified and effective. So the society in my novel is facing a really lethal virus, and they're pretty unified in how they decide to approach it. So I was not at all expecting the absolute chaos and dissension and even refusal to accept reality that played out in response to the COVID pandemic. And just the degree of you know hostility with which people regard each other's views on it was kind of shocking to me. I did not expect that at all. Yeah, I didn't either. Nor did I. One of the things that I love about the book, you build some incredible suspense at the beginning of the book with how you do it technically. You have us starting out, the book opens, everything has already happened. And so I love that you bring that snapshot into it. And then you bring in when they are going to Spain and they're traveling and you get that first hint of the first person getting sick. And it is so scary and frightening to think of that actually happening in real time and that passing it to this person. And then those two people pass it to four people and so on and so on. As you are writing that, how do you pace yourself to not go all in very quickly and sort of just tell us what's going to happen, but you build that slowly? They're unsuspecting. They go to Gibraltar. They do all these things. And like, I want to say, to them, don't go, don't get on that boat. How do you pull yourself back from doing that? That must be hard narratively. Yeah, I think that's a huge compliment you gave me because I don't consider myself to be a good plotter. I'm more of a, like interested in the words and the sentences and the page to page scenario. And I'm not really good at the big picture, but it's kind of like what you just said made me think of, you know, the scene in a horror movie where the person's about to go in the basement and you're like, no, don't do it. So I think a little bit of foreshadowing is, is a good literary technique to give your reader a little, a little bit of information that the character doesn't have. And that sets up their expectation that something's going to happen. You may not know the details yet, but you're really curious to see how it plays out, even though you know this character or this character is going to survive. So it is a technique that took me a long time to learn. I'm not sure I'm great at it. So thank you. <laughs> it worked for me. What about research? There had to be so much research that you had to do to write this novel. Well, I'm really lucky. First of all, I do have a medical background. So Although I'm not an expert in infectious disease or epidemiology or virology by any means, I understand the terminology somewhat. And then I was lucky enough to be able to crowdsource people. So since I started in 2019, that was a lot easier <laughs> than it would have been starting in 2020. So I had a group of about 40 or 50 infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, virologists, 
who were kind enough to answer questions for me or read passages. Some of them even read the entire book. Some of them are quite well known. And then once COVID happened, I started interviewing also a lot of emergency medicine doctors because there's a character in the book who's an emergency medicine doctor. And even though that's my field, it was really enlightening to to read these dozens of emails that my people from all over the country would send me sharing their experiences in the early days of the pandemic and, and you know, their emotions as that was going on. And it was the most, you know, compelling human drama you can imagine. And I don't do it justice, I'm sure. You absolutely do do it justice. And I think that must have just been so interesting to have it playing out right in the middle of you editing and you were able to then real time add that stuff into your novel. Yeah. I mean, people were very frank with me, very open about how devastated they were. And I'm speaking mainly of physicians here, how devastated they were to not be able to save patients because the virus presented in such a different manner than what we were, what we would expect from a pulmonary virus. And and obviously things got better as far as medical treatment as the pandemic went on. But in the beginning, especially, it was overwhelming. And then during surges where people would come in in greater numbers than there was capacity to care for them sometimes, that had a huge effect on all the medical personnel taking care of these patients. And I think we've seen some of that playing out in the news, you know, some of these poor doctors that are just too overwhelmed and you can understand it. It must be terrible. Yeah, yes. I think it's interesting the way you juxtapose the virus with the effect of the virus to not only the general public, but to the doctor's individual families. And I, so when I think of Kira and the inspiration for her, you know, she's this infectious diseases doctor and the realization hits her that this is it, this is happening, this is coming. And I think during COVID, I think many people thought of the effects to first responders and to the actual doctors, but the way you treat that in the book is that this can happen to anyone just because you are a doctor or you are that first responder, you can bring those things home to your loved ones. And while, yes, we knew that, I think you bring that home in the book very, very realistically. Oh, thank you. I did I did really like writing the secondary characters in the book. I mean, of course, I like writing the protagonists. And there's three protagonists for your readers that don't know about it. One is an ER doctor in New York City. One is an OBGYN in San Diego. And then there's Kira, the infectious disease doctor in Atlanta. And of course, they all have family and friends and colleagues. And sometimes I love writing those smaller secondary characters because you can have so much fun with them, you know, give them strong personalities, even though they're only on a few pages or whatever. It's, it's one of the more enjoyable things about writing. And yes, some of these people had terrible things happen to them. But also, I would say there is some sweetness in the book and there's some optimism and hope and even some humor because there's kids in the book and there's work relationships and romances. And sometimes those things are funny. Definitely Kira's relationship with her kids was funny at times when they were giving her a hard time and things. I enjoyed that. I got a kick out of it because it was similar to my own relationship. So I have it. Let me just say I have a teenager. (laughs) Yes, I could tell. (laughs) (laughs) And a younger child. (laughs) So I could definitely tell that. Well, what about the title? I always love to talk about titles and covers, and I'm just curious how your title came about, if this was your original title, if you had to work on it. What's the story behind it? So I suggested about 14 different titles to the publisher, and they did not like any of them. <laughs> so they came up with this title. Um, and at first, I didn't like it, but it is, it, it's very descriptive. I mean, you know what the book is about immediately from hearing that title. And 
all three of my novels have revolved around the concept of friendship as a fundamental human relationship. And in fact, all three novels, which are kind of spinoffs of one another, revolve around this same fictional universe with this group of seven women who went to medical school together and are still, you know, have one of those ride or die close friendships. And that's a lot like my own real life friendship with my best friends from medical school. The women in the book are not directly reflective of any individual real person, but that kind of intense camaraderie is kind of what I was aiming to show. And so you feel like the title then ended up encapsulating that. Yeah, I guess it did. Actually, yes, it could apply to my my real life people. I love that. Yeah, that's great. I think when I think of doctors, and this is going to sound very silly, but when I think of my doctor, I don't necessarily think of my doctor as having friends. It's like your teacher when you're a little kid and you think they live at school. <laughs> that's what, just like, I, so to, to read this, it was so illuminative. I mean, I remember when I read your first book, The Queen of Hearts, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, wow, they, <laughs> doctors are humans too. It's just so silly. But to be reminded of that, I think is, is very important. One of the characters you have at the very beginning of the book is Art Smirt. And, you know, he wants Kira to appear on this docudrama, which I think is so funny. Has this ever happened to you or a friend where you've been approached to appear in like some sort of production, like, you know, Real Doctors of the OR or something like that? That's hilarious that you asked that question. (laughs) Yes, twice. So, and I, I wasn't even really thinking of that when I wrote those scenes. When I was in residency at Vanderbilt, there was a show called, um, I can't remember, Life in the ER or Trauma in the ER or something like that. And they filmed at Vanderbilt for a while. And they filmed me, I'll never forget, in a trauma code for a patient who had suffered terrible burns, which has always been one of my top two most feared injuries. And it was a young person in a terrible tragedy. And they interviewed me afterwards. And I think I cried and talked for about five minutes as eloquently as I could about it. And then the reason I remember this so strongly is the producer came back to me about a half an hour later and said that his sound had been turned off and could I do it again? And I was like, no, I can't. I cannot go. I can't. I can't recreate that. And then the other time, somebody contacted me a year or two ago about being on one of those real life shows with Southern Doctors was going to be the premise, you know, where they follow you around and I guess show all of your social drama and I mentioned it to my husband and he was like, uh-uh, that is not happening. <laughs> that It was a good choice not to do that, I think. I wouldn't want that for you either. <laughs> That's too much reality. No one wants that. And it's just so personal. You know, you feel like things that are very personal to you will end up out in the world that you hadn't probably thought through. Yeah. And they want conflict, right? Because that's what makes for good viewing is, you know, some, some intense fight going down. And, you know, as an author, you're already judged a lot, which is understandable. You know, you write for the public and everything artistic exists in the eye of the beholder and it's not in your head anymore the way it was in the beginning. But I don't necessarily want people to know all the stuff I mess up in real life. (laughs) Or just the day-to-day stuff. Or as you said, you don't want manufactured conflict or conflict that they have to create to have conflict. That's not fun. Yeah. No, I don't think that would be fun for me. (laughs) I would be very stressed. (laughs) Certainly not in the ER anyway. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, how about the cover? I just love the cover. It's very striking. I think it's very representative of the story. Tell me how it came about. 
Well, I have been so lucky with my covers. There's a wonderful graphic designer at Penguin who's done all three of them. And just to give you a little backstory, the first cover for the Queen of Hearts, they did ask me what suggestions I would have. Now, authors, as you know, do not get to pick their covers most of the time. So I said I wanted a vintage-looking drawing of an anatomic heart to reflect the medical specialty of the protagonist of that book, which was cardiology. And they covered it in these beautiful flowers, and it had a blue background like scrubs, and there were some birds and bees woven into the imagery, and it wound up being this incredibly successful cover. It was on a lot of best cover lists. And so they came to me for the second book and said, we want to continue the concept of having the cover art reflect the medical specialty of the protagonist. And I was like, you guys know that this book is about a urologist, right? (laughs) (laughs) I was very, very curious to see what they did with the cover for the antidote for everything, my second book. And they knocked it out of the park and no, it doesn't have a giant penis on it, but I was kind of hoping that it would. Well, with all those flowers, you really, you know. You could have done it, right? Like you could have (laughs) Could have been that. Could have been hidden in there. Yeah. <laughs> so then the third book, the publisher did not want to lean into pandemic imagery is what they told me. And I said, well, but we can't hide what the book is about. So we compromised and we went, it went through a lot of iterations. Initially, the cover art to me looked too cheerful. And so we decided to go with kind of a somber color for the background. It's this purpley, inky black and some silhouettes of doctors' faces. And then if you look closely, there's some viral imagery woven amongst the floral elements. And it turned out to be really artistic and beautiful. It truly is. It's absolutely beautiful. It's stunning. And it's original, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times you think, okay, all the covers are looking the same now. Yes. And so this one, I think, stands out a little bit. That's sort of my constant mantra is how similar so many of the covers are. So I love it when I see one that it definitely is different, unique, and represents a story well. This will look wonderful on the library shelves when this book comes out. Yes, yes. Thank you, libraries. So by the time this episode launches, you're going to be on that promotional train. By the way, your website is hysterical. You've got two bios featured on your website. One is very serious and one is laugh out loud funny, which I just, I think that's, I don't know why, what was the choice in creating the two bios? Also, it makes you so real and normal and approachable. I just, I love that second bio. It worked. It was great. The bio that you think is funny is the original one I wrote before anybody told me what a bio was supposed to look like. (laughs) During the promotion for the Queen of Hearts, I was so dumb. I didn't even know that, you know, interviewers would go to your website and pull the bio from there. So (laughs) they would introduce me and say things like, you know, Kim Marie is an inventive cook who who hates to exercise or whatever. I'm like, whoa, you know. So then I added a real one once I figured out. (laughs) Okay. That's really funny. I like that story. It's a great website. It's got all of the, what I love also about the website is that you have so much material for book discussion. So if a library librarian wants to do a book discussion of your books or any person out there who wants to do a book discussion, you've got all of this material to help with that. So I'm appreciative of that as a fan and as, a, as somebody who recommends books for book discussions a lot. So I, I do appreciate that. And you're going to be getting on this promotional train, one of which is today. You've got all kinds of things scheduled, but you have probably a bunch of upcoming events. Where can listeners and readers find you if they want to play along? 
Yeah, I'm heading out on a book tour and we're actually doing some in-person stops, which I'm very excited about. So that's on my website, kimmarymartin.com under the events tab and also on Instagram and Facebook and all the places. That's exciting that you'll be back in person for some events. You must be thrilled. Yeah, I had the first one two days ago because um, there was a book festival in Kentucky and I grew up in rural, rural Kentucky. And so my publisher let me sell a few copies there early and it was very exciting. Guess who came? My high school English teacher. Oh my gosh, that's great. I had not seen her in decades. And I looked up and there was Mrs. Lambert. I about cried. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's, I mean, it took me back. I can still remember her comments on my essays in high school. And I, you know, I just want to say to all the teachers out there, you make such an impact. Oh my gosh. You really do. Oh, I just love that. Oh my gosh. She's probably like, I remember I knew you when, and I knew big things for you. But I love also, she must be thrilled with the fact that you were able to blend the medical with the literary. I think that's just such an interesting and really fabulous combination. Yeah, it is. And I say this because for sometimes I teach writing classes online, but I also taught an in-person course in Florida called Fiction Writing for Physicians. And there were lots of attendees. I think there is something that connects the scientific side of your brain with the literary side. And the, and the people who tend to enjoy both, for whatever reason, are drawn to the practice of medicine. And of course, you know, in, in a medical career, you see the entire depth and breadth of the human condition and the high and, highs and lows of life and and all that stuff lends itself to literary topics as well. Well, and it makes for a fascinating read. Yeah, I have the kind of job that people instinctively understand because everybody knows what an ER doctor does. I, I have no idea what a consultant does. Right. <laughs> My friends that are in, you know, working with financial derivatives or working for consulting firms, I'm like, but what do you do? <laughs> but everyone knows what an ER doctor does. So I think we can kind of all relate to that. I think that's a very good point. And on that note, you talk about each one of your books sort of incorporating some of the same characters. Are you continuing that? What are you working on next? Yeah, I think, you know, all the books are a little bit of spinoffs of each other because a minor character in one will become the protagonist in the next. And so there, I am going to write the next book with some of the minor characters in Doctors and Friends as major characters. And then I also want to do, do you remember the character of Vani in the book? I really want to write a book with her as the protagonist too. So that might either be book, probably book four won't be, but book five will be about Vani. You talk about that at the end of your book too. Yeah, because I had her as a point of view character for a while and I thought it was too confusing to have four point of view characters. So I took her out thinking that she was the most interesting to be her own book. Got it. Well, look forward to that. Same, same. Really look forward to that. And more hair color, because I don't know what you're going to do to us next. <laughs> and, and I also will say, and you guys have read the book, so there's a major character who undergoes something near the end of the book, and I can't say what it is, but that will be addressed in a future book as well. Okay. Good to know. Very good to know. And I'm really trying to keep it spoiler free, <laughs> but yes, yes, good. I'm glad. All right. Anything else, Cindy? What do you think? Well, I'd love to hear what's on your nightstand, what you've got up next to read, or what you've read recently that you loved. 
I'm a little bit hampered by the fact that I can basically only remember one book title at a time. It's kind of like I can only remember one joke at a time. But I right now I'm reading My Life Abroad by, I think the author's name is Chang Ray Lee or something similar to that. It's a really literary book. You can kind of dip in and out of it and savor it. And it is so beautifully written. The best book I've read this year, for sure. I interviewed him on the Top Shelf podcast. Uh, what? <laughs> I've got to listen to that. At the beginning of the year, whenever the book came out, and I just, I, I loved it. I think that is such, I'm really glad you're reading it. I, I ask people a lot, you know, have you read this book? And oh my gosh, so I'm really thrilled. It's, it's a great recommendation and I'm glad you're reading it. Oh, I cannot wait to hear what he said about it. I'm going to listen to your podcast the okay. second I can. No spoilers. I promise. I won't tell you. Yeah, no, don't tell me. <laughs> he was wonderful. It's a great interview. Well, I haven't read that one yet, but I clearly need to add it to the list. Yeah, really, Cindy. I mean, we will, you, there will be no sunshine coming through our windows because of all the books that we have to read. Occupational hazard. I'm sure you guys can barely get out the door. It is true. So very true. So you have to be out pretty soon. We're going to let you go. And we talked about the website and this big tour that you're going on and, and some of your live events. So readers can find you on your website at those locations, wherever you're going to be. Some will probably be Zoom, I guess, and some will be in-person events. The great thing about Zoom is that you can be in you know Kentucky and see you in North Carolina or wherever you're going to be. So uh, that's the one thing I'm able to do that as, as a reader, as sort of armchair travel to wherever the authors are. So I'm really grateful to have that option there. And we're so glad you chatted with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. You guys are wonderful. Thank you for having me. Kimberly Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, we thank you so much for joining us. Cindy, this has been a thrill to co-host this episode between our two podcasts. And I don't know, maybe this could be the name of our new venture between two podcasts. I love it. And Kimberly, thank you for being with us and letting us both interview you together. It was wonderful. Thank you guys. Hope to meet in real life someday. Oh my gosh, I hope so. Take care. This is Carol Ann Tack, host of Top Shelf at Merrick Library, saying thank you all so much for listening. And this is Cindy Burnett, host of Thoughts from a Page podcast, thanking you as well. Remember to follow both shows, Thoughts from a Page and Top Shelf at Merrick Library, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. This has been a thrill and a joy. And thank you guys all for listening. Cindy, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carol Ann. And yes, thank you everybody for listening. We had a ball. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no 
and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.